This is a special edition of the Sufi Reverberations podcast. Rather than presenting a story, poem, essay, and a musical interlude, the following program gives expression to one episode of a multi-part editorial entitled The Essence of the Problem That Lies Before Us. This commentary is a critical reflection on the nature of the problem which underlies the existential circumstances in which we are entangled. Under the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, establishing religion or pursuing its free exercise could be a right, as well as a power, that have been retained by or reserved for, quote, the people, end of quote, respectively. However, under the Tenth Amendment, there is nothing which demands that such a power should be reserved for the states. And in fact, in order to try to argue that states should have the power to establish religion or prohibit its free exercise thereof, one would have to not only be able to demonstrate why the states should have the power to deny the people a right that, under the Ninth Amendment, has been retained by the people, yet not retained by the states, but as well one would have to be able to put forth a defensible argument as to why under the Tenth Amendment powers, in this case having to do with establishing religion or prohibiting its free exercise, are being arbitrarily reserved only for the states when the powers being alluded to in that amendment are clearly reserved for both the states or the people. On the one hand, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments give expression respectively to the existence of rights and powers that are not yet specified. However, on the other hand, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments also seem to indicate one cannot presume that, quote, the people, end of quote, and, quote, the states respectively, end of quote, are necessarily equivalent terms or synonyms for one another. The latter possibility is given further support in light of the manner in which many states developed constitutional frameworks, both prior to as well as following the 1787 Philadelphia Convention, which stipulated how the citizens of those states, in other words the people, were recognized to have the right within certain negotiated parameters to be free from governmental intrusions concerning the establishment and exercise of religion. Consequently, irrespective of whether or not states can claim the power under the Tenth Amendment to establish religion or prohibit its free exercise thereof, nonetheless states seemingly were quite willing to cede away to the people even the possibility of such a state power when they set about via state constitutions safeguarding the right of people to be able to establish religion and its free exercise thereof. The states were not granting people the right to establish religion or freely exercise it. Rather, the states were merely acknowledging the same fundamental principle that the Constitution clearly recognized in both the First Amendment as well as the Ninth Amendment, namely that the people had rights, one of which concerned the establishment of religion and its free exercise, that were quite independent of the powers of either the federal or state governments. However, if one were to assume, contrary to what has been set forth previously in this commentary, that states did have the power 
under the Tenth Amendment to establish religion or prohibit the free exercise thereof, then one is presented with a substantial problem. More specifically, if, quote, the people, end of quote, have been accorded an array of unspecified rights under the Ninth Amendment, and also have been accorded certain unspecified powers under the Tenth Amendment, in other words, those which have not been delegated to the federal government nor prohibited to the states, then how are the conflicts to be resolved, and who does this, and through what methods, and with what justification, that are likely to arise when in conjunction with the rights that are retained by the people, meaning that they have always had such rights under the Ninth Amendment, as well as in conjunction with the powers that have been reserved for the people under the Tenth Amendment, quote, the states respectively, end of quote, attempt under the Tenth Amendment to either establish their own religion or prohibit the free exercise thereof with respect to whatever sorts of religious activities are being pursued by the people. The simplest way of resolving the foregoing sorts of problems is to merely accept the principle that is implicit in, at a minimum, the First, Ninth, and Tenth Amendments, as well as the traditional practice of state governments, both prior to as well as following the ratification of the 1787 Constitution. More specifically, governments, whether federal or state, should not have the right or power to make laws, irrespective of whether this arises through legislative executive, or judicial proceedings, quote, respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, end of quote. Notwithstanding the foregoing considerations, the issue of who has the power or right to undertake, quote, an establishment of religion, end of quote, might not be as straightforward as the previous discussion seems to suggest. For example, some individuals have argued that there are implied powers contained in the Constitution by virtue of such features as, among other possibilities, the necessary and proper clause that is found in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. Conceivably, such alleged implied powers might have consequential ramifications for, among other things, how the First, Ninth, and Tenth Amendments play out within a given existential framework involving, for instance, the establishment of religion or prohibiting its free exercise thereof. The fuller context in which the aforementioned necessary and proper clause appears is, quote, The Congress shall have power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States, or in any department or officer thereof. End of quote. Unfortunately, nowhere in the Constitution is one given guidance concerning the nature of the specific criteria that are to be used to identify or justify what is meant by the terms necessary or proper. Furthermore, the Ninth Amendment would appear to have a potential for placing constraints of one kind or another on any notions of necessity and propriety that might be invoked by the federal government as a government seeks to act upon the authority which the Constitution lends to it, 
In other words, as previously noted, the Ninth Amendment stipulates that, quote, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people, end of quote. So one can't help but wonder what the nature of the rights are that are being alluded to in the Ninth Amendment that cannot be denied or disparaged. In addition, one can't help but wonder about how the unspecified rights that are potentially present in the Ninth Amendment might have the potential to serve in various ways as a source of possible constraint on what is considered to be necessary and proper with respect to the dynamics of federal government. When one takes the vagueness of the necessary and proper clause of Article 1, Section 8 and juxtaposes it next to the constitutional allusion, vague though this might be, concerning the unspecified rights in the Ninth Amendment that belong to the people, then one encounters a potential for considerable conflict. This is because one does not know whether or not what is considered necessary and proper by the federal government will end up denying or disparaging the sort of rights that nonetheless, according to the Ninth Amendment, are still retained by the people despite not having been enumerated. Article 8, Section 1 of the Constitution does indicate that among the powers of Congress is one that involves the capacity, quote, to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, end of quote. This, however, seems to accomplish little except to make the political waters even murkier, since, as previously indicated, not only is nothing said in the Constitution about what the properties are that one should consider in order to be able to identify what is either necessary and proper in order to, quote, provide for the common defense and general welfare, end of quote, but perhaps even more importantly, the Constitution offers little help with respect to identifying what is meant or entailed by the notions of, quote, general welfare, end of quote, and, quote, common defense, end of quote. Consequently, until one knows what is actually meant by any of the foregoing terms, as well as what justifies such an understanding concerning those notions, then one is not really in any position to be able to argue for what is necessary and proper with respect to those notions. People are likely to generate different theories about what constitutes the, quote, general welfare, end of quote, or the, quote, common defense, end of quote. In addition, for each theory concerning what is meant by those two terms, there will be accompanying theories about what might be necessary and proper with respect to the process of bringing to life notions such as, quote, the general welfare, end of quote, and the, quote, common defense, end of quote. How does one go about justifying whatever determinations that might be made with respect to any of the foregoing constitutional vagueness? And how does one go about justifying how such determinations impinge on or are constrained by the existence of possible rights that are not specifically mentioned in the Constitution, but which nonetheless, according to the Ninth Amendment, cannot be denied or disparaged merely because they have not yet been enumerated. 
The Constitution does have something of potential importance to say concerning the general nature of the process through which one should engage the foregoing questions and problems, but such guidance does nothing to address substantive issues of content concerning, for example, what is meant by necessary or proper in relation to, say, issues of, quote, common defense, end of quote, or, quote, general welfare, end of quote. The aforementioned constitutional assistance comes in the form of Article 4, Section 4, which gives expression to the only guarantee that is present in the Constitution. More specifically, quote, The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion and on application of the legislature or of the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence. End of quote. There were and are some who believe that nothing much is entailed by the sort of quote-unquote republicanism that is being guaranteed in Article 4, Section 4. If such people are correct, then one must consider the possibility that the people responsible for drawing up the Constitution knowingly sought to mislead existing and subsequent generations of the American people by guaranteeing something that, essentially, was devoid of any value and thereby create the impression through such a guarantee that something of significance was being offered when this was not true, and such duplicity was pursued in order to try to sell to the American public a set of ideas concerning government about which many people in America at that time had questions and doubts, and therefore towards which they harbored a healthy amount of skepticism because of the concerns that possibly a political system was being foisted on them, which might undermine, among other things, their rights and liberties. However, notwithstanding the foregoing perspective, there also were and are others who believe, contrary to the foregoing hermeneutical orientation, that what is being guaranteed in Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution gives expression to something of essential importance. In fact, this latter group of individuals might be inclined to argue that if the Constitution is going to work at all, then such success would be predicated on the idea that those who participated in government were going to be constrained by a set of principles and values in which the people could have confidence and which had the potential to set the American form of government apart from any other mode of government that was known to human beings at that time. Republicanism was a philosophical worldview that emerged within the context of the 17th and 18th century Enlightenment. This perspective was characterized by a set of epistemological and moral precepts that were intended to help assist human beings to make sound, defensible, equitable kinds of decisions. The very sort of decision process that might be of assistance to individuals during the course of everyday life. But, as well, republicanism gave expression to a way of engaging life that could help those who were engaged in government to make decisions that, if properly executed, might be devoid of, among other things, partisan interest.
To act in accordance with Republican values, one had to be impartial, disinterested in personal gain, unbiased, selfless, objective, fair, honorable, given to reason, compassionate, inclined towards self-sacrifice, committed to the idea of liberty, a person of integrity, independent, egalitarian, and unwilling to serve as a judge in one's own causes. Given the nature of the foregoing sorts of qualities, the guarantee of a republican form of government to each of the states gives expression to nothing less than the moral obligation of every member of the federal government, thereby encompassing the legislative, executive, and judicial branches, to be entirely devoted to the process of serving the interests of all the people in the United States, while being entirely disengaged from one's own personal interests, except to the extent that the latter interests were concordant with the interests of everyone else. The foregoing considerations still do not resolve the difficulties that surround trying to determine what is meant by the ideas of necessity or propriety in the, quote, necessary improper, end of quote, clause. Nor do such considerations resolve the problems which tend to permeate the process of trying to determine what is meant by, quote, the general welfare, end of quote, or what is meant by, quote, the common defense, end of quote, that are mentioned in both the preamble to the Constitution as well as in Article 1, Section 8. Nonetheless, what the guarantee in Article 4, Section 4 does do is to specify that the only permissible manner through which, among other things, the aforementioned sorts of social, political, economic, and legal difficulties and problems can be addressed is by means of Republican principles that are rooted in values of objectivity, reason, independence, lack of partisanship, integrity, honor, honesty, objectivity, compassion, fairness, nobility, and an absence of self-interest. Having set the stage in the foregoing manner, let's return to the third question mentioned towards the beginning of this commentary. What is the nature of the religion that Congress is forbidden to establish and which the executive and judicial branches are not entitled to establish because this is not among the enumerated powers that have been afforded to those branches by the Constitution? The individuals who help shape and refine the Madison-based constitutional template during the Philadelphia Convention of 1787 were, to some degree, familiar with a wide variety of religious orientations, ranging from deism to a multiplicity of Christian sects, as well as extended not only to some of the spiritual traditions of indigenous peoples of North America, but also included a certain amount of information or misinformation about Islam and Buddhism, together with a passing acquaintance with various polytheistic traditions associated with Egypt, India, Greece, Rome, Africa, and various pagan traditions. Despite whatever differences might exist among the foregoing religious traditions, there are, nonetheless, some themes that are held in common by all of the foregoing possibilities. For example, there is a sense of the sacred or the holy that is associated with such traditions, 
and in addition, adherents of different religious traditions tend to have their lives organized by the sense of reverence, belief, faith, awe, meaning, purpose, identity, morality, obligation, and devotion that are developed or expected with respect to one's religious orientation in which are given expression through the forms of worship, prayer, service, ritual, obedience, and practice that are used to cope with, if not provide a narrative for, the contingencies of life, as well as for whatever, if anything, might lie beyond the present life. In short, religion gives expression to an individual's way of understanding the nature of one's relationship with being or existence. Religion gives expression to one's understanding of reality and how reality should be engaged. Religion goes to the heart of what one believes to be true concerning the nature of existence and how one should proceed in life. Given the foregoing generalized understanding of religion, and given that the individuals who were responsible for generating the 1787 Constitution were aware to varying degrees that people in different parts of the world, including America, pursued religion in accordance with the variety of sentiments, interests, activities, commitments, and orientations that have been touched upon earlier, one comes face to face with a rather substantial problem. More specifically, how does one differentiate religion from the public policy of a government, irrespective of whether or not such policy is couched in overtly religious terms? Public policy encompasses the political system of ideas, beliefs, values, purposes, meanings, duties, and principles that are used to promote what is considered to be in the interests of the people with respect to issues of common health, welfare, and safety. Yet isn't the foregoing observation on public policy similar to, if not reasonably reflective of, the general stance of most religions, which tend to be characterized as constituting systems of ideas, beliefs, values, purposes, meanings, duties, and principles that are followed in order to promote what is considered to enhance or lead to that which is deemed to be in the interest of people with respect to issues such as their common health, welfare, and safety. If the answer to the foregoing question is yes, then whenever governments via legislative assemblies, executive actions, and or judicial review set about trying to put forth policies that require the people to conform to, comply with, or obey some given set of political, economic, social, scientific, medical, and or financial perspectives concerning the nature of, say, the, quote, common defense, end of quote, or the, quote, general welfare, end of quote, and whenever such officials seek to do so in accordance with whatever they believe to be necessary and proper, in order to bring to bear the properties and qualities of such perspectives upon, among other things, the common defense and the general welfare, then how is this any different than what various religions attempt to accomplish as well? Furthermore, to be religious might involve but does not require one to accept either the idea of one God or a multiplicity of gods. To be religious is to establish a framework of beliefs and conduct 
concerning one's understanding about the nature of the relationship among the self, the universe, and that which makes the self and the universe possible. Part 3 of The Essence of the Problem That Lies Before Us will be available for listening or downloading sometime within the next week, that is, at some point during the first week of September 2020. So please stay tuned. From one tiny desk on a relatively small planet in a solar system that forms a speck in a galaxy that exists along with billions of other galaxies amidst spatial voids tens of millions of light years across on a material plane that constitutes but one of many realms in God's indefinitely large universe. You are listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast.